Ladies and gentlemen, you're now tuned in to the High Culture Podcast, where we bring the mind of the divine into our times. I'm your host, Sheree James, and my co-hosts, Terrence Frederick and Jonathan Austin. Do me a favor, show us some love. Blessings, blessings, blessings on all of our listeners today. It's a beautiful Sabbath. We're excited to be with you another wonderful week. Uh, we pray that your your weeks have been well, that everyone in your household is healthy, uh, that you have all that you need. And then we even petition the Father just to meet your needs where you are, um, that you have peace, peace of mind. I mean, if you don't have anything else, I pray definitely that you have the peace of mind uh, to understand that, that you can overcome whatever situation that you might be in. If there are actual needs that need to be met, um, our, our father, he is a provider and he speaks to the heart of men um, so that he can uh, have those needs met. He uses people. And so again, we are just excited that you decided to take your time to join us today for some great conversation. We definitely want to pick up where we left off last week. We got into some heavy topics and we definitely are going to do the same this week. We're going to continue on in those topics. We feel like there's a lot more that could be said um, in those areas. And uh, we're going to keep the conversation going. But before we jump into our uh, podcast for the day, our content for the day, I'm going to check in with my brothers and co-hosts. Uh, Jonathan, let the people know what's going on with you. How are you this Sabbath? I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Blessed. Blessed. Feeling good. Um, it's been a great week. It's been a really, really good week. Um but really, really good. Overall, feeling real good. Yeah, amen. That's good. How about you, Terrence? What's going on with you? Everything is good. Um, letting the word dwell richly in me. So um, I'm excited. You know, the word will get in you and you, you just get excited about sharing it like fire set up in your bones. So that, I'm feeling like that today. <laughs> oh, man. Well, that's that's beautiful. We definitely going to let uh, let the word have it say, let it flow, let the wisdom of God flow. Um, just as we always say as our listeners, we pray that this content is going to edify you, allow you and your family to continue to grow in the things of the Most High God, um, that you're enriched by our content and that you continue these conversations in your places, small spaces, um, with your friends and family, um, because we know that as we observe this, uh, these conversations and extract the wisdom of God, um, or approach them even with curiosity to, you know, provoke us to think, uh, more or differently about the topics at hand, we'll continue to, um, elevate, uh, through that process. As for me and my household, everything is lovely. My mother had uh, recently had surgery, um, uh, on yesterday on Friday, and uh, she's recovering well from it. You know, it'll be a little time before she gets back there herself, but everything is good on this side. And so I, I'm thankful, I'm grateful, and I'm ready to jump into our content. But let's get into our first our first segment of today's podcast for the culture. Yeah, yeah, that's right. We're going to get into for the culture. This is our cultural uh, topic for the day. We um, last week we were breaking into the topic of the validity of marriage in today's time. And I guess even more so the the legalities of it, uh, getting a formal uh, 
marriage certificate. Much much of what we realize is that this generation seems to be anti-marriage. There are statistics that say that millennials are definitely not rushing to marriage. They're not necessarily the, the numbers of marriage are not um, as high as they were in previous years, or people are waiting till much later in life to get married. Um, and I, I will partially say that our generation was told to focus on career and education first. That was what our generation was raised up to think about. And, you know, once people get into a certain place in life, they kind of get settled in their thought process about how they, how they want their life to go. And they're unwilling to uh, open themselves up for any type of change. Um, all that stuff is uncomfortable. Although we do enjoy a community, just not necessarily in a traditional sense. Um, but that brings us back to the conversation we were having last week, you know, just digging into the validity of marriage because people are not just anti-marriage because of those things that were pressed upon us as young people. A lot of times people feel like the, the, the construct of marriage uh, is archaic and some of its uh some of its infrastructure leads to oppression to women and that um uh, and, and then the, the other side of it is that men uh feel too financially vulnerable in the situation. Last week we brought up the situation with Dr. Dre. Um and there are several other people that in the last week, uh Kelly Clarkson, um, several other individuals that were hit with um orders where they had to pay alimony of a very high amount, but we're talking about very high grossing uh, celebrities who whose net worth is you know unimaginable numbers for the average person so those types of things come up and people feel conflicted about marriage because of the financial vulnerability they perceive uh, they will have although these numbers don't have anything to do with what they bring home on a daily basis but last week I left off on the question of why do we do life people build a whole life together have children get cars you know, have leases or mortgages in their name together. Um, they do all of that. And then they say, we still don't want to get married. I'm curious about that. So I want to just throw it to you guys. Like, I know that you may not have an actual answer, but what do you think is the motivation for that? You know, doing all of that and just being like, ah, uh, nah, I still don't want to get married. Um, I would say first comfort. I think once you've started to establish something and it's, you're building and you're growing, you're comfortable. And so adding in another element creates a form of uncomfort. That's one thing. So I just think people just kind of setting their ways and doing those things. And then the other side of, the, of that is I think we approach marriage more as a community than we probably should. So we base our experiences on a uh, perspective marriage on what everybody else is saying about it or not getting married on what everybody's saying about it. If you're in a circle where everybody's okay you know, nobody really has an issue with you guys not getting married. You're building. Everybody's OK with it. you can just do your thing. You're going to be more comfortable doing it. If you're around people who are stressing and, and constantly putting those kind of pressures on you to get married, you might be more likely to get married. So I think we don't approach it as individual as we should. Even when we're talking about like those different financial ramifications, people, you know, you, you always kind of get the bad and the horror stories. Everybody want to give those stories. But you don't really get uh, the good side of marriage. No one just comes around and just starts talking about how great their marriage is most of the time. But you will get a bunch of reasons why people don't want to get married. And we tend to feed off of that. I agree. Yeah, I think a lot of it's fear. You know, um, this the fear from uh, what the scripture calls that there are many things that are that we receive as 
our ideologies or our strongholds in our minds. Doct- I would call them doctrines of demons because a lot of times people receive these lessons from the street, you know, and don't let nobody take advantage of you and you don't trust nobody on both sides of it. And we have a fear of joining into it just because, like you said, other people's um, horror stories, other people's testimonies, even maybe growing up in a family that um, dealt with a strong divorce or something like that, a, a heartbreaking uh, separation, that kind of thing. Um, so I think that's where it comes from. Uh, mainly people are too afraid to step out there like that because what they're hearing more than anything is you're better off doing it on your own. Yeah, I would agree with that. Doctrines of devils. And, well, and this is the thing, right? We're not leaning into the side of like marriage idolatry. Uh, we know that statistically it's impossible for every adult person uh, to find themselves in a marriage. Uh, and even if you reduce that number, you go into the church, it's even drastically lower. You know what I'm saying? It's way lower. So we know that not all people will be married. We're just talking about those who want to do all the things that married people do, but don't want to get married, which is, it just, it's kind of confusing, but I do, like you said, the doctrines of devils, they have us doing all kinds of things that don't make any logical sense. Speaking of that, when I was, uh, I, I was watching a, a video, a YouTube video by a lawyer and this particular um, attorney was in the state of Texas or California. I think they had some, some situation where they had offices in both places. Um, but the lawyer basically explained it in some places that common law marriages are legally recognized the same as um, as a you know a ceremonial marriage that you would have, and the the precursor to that would be that uh, both people agreed to, that they would eventually get married. They had an agreement to be married. They had proof that they lived together. Um, that they represented to others that they were a couple, that they were together, and that both people were adults. And so when they enter into a court situation um, in a common law situation, they will be treated the same in in um, in the in the circumstances of the division of assets and child custody. So some of some of you guys are already putting yourselves in a situation where um, you could face the same, you know, turbulence that you're fearful of because you're doing things the other way uh, or, or you're trying to avoid it. But that brings me to the other element of this is, you know, looking at um, marriage from a biblical point of view and in its benefits. You know, I think that it's already hard work to become one with another person. <laughs> like it's just like to be resolved within yourself as an individual and continue to grow and thrive and be better than you were the next day. That's already work. So you're trying to do that in tandem with another person while always trying to maintain some level of agreement um, in the midst of that process. That's a lot of work. And understandably so, I don't see how people do that without help uh, of divine intervention, without help of the Holy Spirit. I don't even know how that's even possible. So that that led me back to my original question. Should unbelievers get married um, without the Holy Spirit? I know this whole time we've been trying to avoid or it's just set aside the spiritual element of it. But if marriage is God's idea, then we would need him to, in order to, to actually manifest the idea in its fullness, um, in its maturity or in its, you know, highest, uh, picture that it's supposed to portray. And I think that that's another reason why people are afraid to get married because the lack of demonstration of 
spirit led or or spirit centered marriages. What are y'all thoughts on that? Well, I'll say um, when it comes to the idea that people who are getting married are not living up to the ideals of marriage, I'll say, yeah, you may have a point that there are many unbelievers. I mean, unbelievers, they don't have the spirit. So what is their investment or what is what is the value of that? But then you have many believers who have the spirit who still end up struggling and dealing with stuff to where they end up looking just like everybody else when it comes to that. I believe that whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, the principle of marriage is a creational principle and not just a principle that deals with um, Christology or being in the faith. So I would encourage even the unbeliever, male and female, one male, one female, uh, original, or you know, from birth, male, female, get together, get married. You already, like you said, you're already living your life together to go ahead and do that because God could save them later and even reveal to them. And I believe he starts working on people's lives and destinies prior to them coming into the kingdom. So, and I've heard many testimonies of people coming into marriage, being unbelievers, and then coming into Christ and still being able to use their whole marriage story as a testimony uh, of what God was doing and showing his love even through that manner. So I would still encourage marriage because I think that there are times where we have to not only speak for our faith, but we need to speak uh, for creation and for the um, continuation of creation, how he designed it. Um, there was one other thing I would say about that is there's a scripture where Christ said, no man can come into me unless the father first draws him. And so the, the Lord, the father uses creation, creational things, creational principles to even reveal the beauty of, of Christ to humanity. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I don't, um, I, I guess I don't even lean on the side of discouraging marriage. I guess I was more so just asking, begging the question of it, how is it possible? Because we know how difficult it is where people without the spirit in the midst of that, you know, providing a mediation of sorts. Um, but I guess people do it, you know, they come to their own agreement, but I, I, I agree with that on, on you, what you just said in terms of encouraging marriage on both fronts and then, you know, allowing, allowing the spirit to do the rest of the work along the journey. Um, one other thing I wanted to pull out of there because I, I mentioned it last week with just dealing with how some women choose not to be married because uh, they feel like it's archaic and it's oppressive. And even if you go to some biblical context, uh, people will point and say, okay, women were property. Um, women were treated as property. And as you go along in different, different societies and different periods of civilization, women were kind of used as bartering tools, you know, for men to, expand their kingdom and and i i don't disagree with that part of it but i don't <clears throat> i don't see from the beginning that that was god's ideal of how the woman's role would be in the marriage um uh, i believe that his intention was to show a protection uh for the mother for the 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 bride and even so much so that he depicts that even further down the line even if you go into scripture he depicts those who are in christ as the bride and that Christ is the one that's ultimately making the sacrifices and, and makes the payment 
um, to, to basically redeem the bride or to bring the bride to her full self. And I think that that's always how God has envisioned the bride to be in the marriage. Um, and not someone that is oppressed, but someone that, um, that has strength that brings that strength and brings that ability alongside of the man, uh, and to mature and to birth a vision, to be a cultivator of those things and to allow for the fruit to be brought forth and that the man would lead her in gentleness, um, in meekness, uh, with the help of Holy spirit leading him along his way and in tandem as a team, then they manifest God's highest ideals for them as a family unit. And they bring into creation solutions and all the things that God has uh, intended for their destiny and for the earth because they were brought here. So that's, that's the perspective that is given in scripture as a whole picture. Although the scripture does narrate stories of fallen people, it does narrate stories about people that are in sin, but the overall, the overarching story is about the redeemer who brings men back, brings men and women back to God's highest ideal for them. And so we don't model ourselves after broken people. We model ourselves after the father and we mature into that. But um, it's, it's, it's more things that we can go into that, but I don't want to belabor that topic. I think that uh, if you want to be in a committed, uh, faithful relationship with someone that you should partner with God. And even if you're not in that place yet, that you should make the commitment to that person um, and then move and allow the Holy spirit to partner with you as you guys go on that journey together to make that lifetime um, commitment. Um, fellas, do you have any final thoughts about this topic? Uh, I think that was a good point. And I think that kind of solidifies the reasoning why um, you kind of want to be spirit led. You know, we have people who are not spirit-led who have great marriages, but then they kind of work out their covenant on their own. But I think the spirit-led aspect, one of the hot topics that I have been seeing around this, and I know we can get into this at a later time, is the connotation around the word submissive. Right? What does it mean to be submissive in a marriage? And, you know, there's such a negative connotation around the word submissiveness. And that's one of the things that I think that archaic women being controlled and all of that stuff kind of seeping into with marriage actually is based on others interpretation on things that they're hearing or seeing so i think it's very very important to be spirit-led and i think that'd be cool to get into it uh to discuss one of these times yeah me too i, I think that we definitely can get into that and um for the single people out there you know one day we'll talk about marriage idolatry in the context of church, because we do know that that's a thing as well. Um, we, we value marriage because that is something that God created and God ordained. But then there's also the gift of singleness for those who are called to that and, and those who find themselves in that position. And uh, we want you to feel encouraged as well and not pining away uh, because you don't have a spouse because you're not, that's not what makes you whole. God is the person that makes you whole and he will ultimately decide what your destiny should look like and what type of partnerships and relationships need to be a part of your journey for that to happen. So without further ado, guys, we're going to go ahead and transition to our next segment, the Congress. Congress. Yeah, that's right. We're about to get into the Congress. I'm going to throw it over to Jonathan to get us uh, back into our topic from last week. Jonathan. Hey, all right. So yeah, last week we got into uh, police reform and we talked about like what the history of policing what policing looks like. And today I want us to discuss what should policing look like, right? We kind of brought up, up the issues last week, but you know, we want to be solution driven as well. And so we want to be able to talk about some things that we want to see and not just the issues. 
Um, but one thing that is interesting this week that did come that I did come across was the issue in Kaufman, Texas. I think that's good to discuss to talk about what policing looks like and issues that we have in policing. Um, in Kaufman, Texas, um, last week uh, there was this young lady who was apparently walking down the street. She was upset. She was in tears, and the uh, the police officer came. Um, she was in the neighborhood and he approached her, was asking her name and, you know, uh, what was going on, what her issues were and different questions like that. Um, and she was responding accurately to the cops. She was at, letting him know she's fine. She just wanted to go home. She was on her way home. He asked her address. She said she didn't want to tell him she was scared. And the situation just continued to escalate from there. Now, his reasoning was, well, I got a call that, you know, people said you were running back and forth in the traffic in front of cars. So I want to make sure you're okay. Um, but the interaction with the young lady was not, in my opinion, was not one of ensuring that she was okay. It was more of trying to enforce control over a situation that probably didn't need his control at all. And it ended with, I don't know um, if she, I think he said she was being detained. Her mind was being detained. She was on the ground cuffed. I know she was having trouble breathing while he was on the ground with her as well. So there's a lot of things stemming from that. It hasn't been resolved yet, but um, I don't know if you all got a chance to see it. Um, um, what do you think about those type of interactions with police? And more importantly, what should that even look like? Yeah, I got a chance to watch the the footage of that. And honestly, I, I think that if anything, uh, that, that could have been a wealth welfare encounter. You know, if he got a call saying that the young lady, he mentioned that he got a call that the young lady was putting herself in traffic or jumping in traffic or whatever. Once he approached her, he saw that she was upset. She was walking around her neighborhood with no shoes on. Um, she didn't appear to be disheveled or like disoriented or anything. She just seemed to be crying and upset. And later in the video, you hear her mom say that someone in their family just died. So that to me sounded like what the young lady was dealing with, uh, an issue with grief. But I feel like the police officer, he escalated the situation by aggressively his his approach was way too aggressive uh for something that it wasn't a, a crime being committed even if he thought that she was harmed to herself or you know to someone else more so to herself i think that that was a different way to approach uh, a mental health or welfare check situation uh, because if he got a call that someone was trying to harm themselves your approach shouldn't be treating them like you got a call for a criminal activity or a person posing danger to the community they live in. And it's like, he never gave her the benefit of doubt when he, she told him that she lived in the neighborhood. He wanted to know where she lived and, you know, he wanted to detain her, even though he never, never Miranda, um, Mirandized her or anything like that. He held her. And I felt like that was against her will because she didn't, she, there was nothing that required the police to respond the way. And then of course, everything escalated because now she has anxiety about, the things that she's seen about police. And so now her response is elevated and she's not responding well. Now she's trying to snatch away and it just goes further and further away. And I think that the police officer is the initiator of the problem in that video where he could have simply just asked her if she was okay, see if she needed a ride to where she was going, if he was that concerned. And if she said, no, I'm fine. Just let her go about her way. That was, easy as it could be and if he really had concern about her harming herself maybe like trail her a little bit just to make sure that she makes it where she's going safely i think that that would have been the end of that encounter but he definitely escalated it 
And I'll, I'll toss it back to you to, to get back into the part where his camera is not on his body and all that type of stuff. So Yeah. So by the time they ended up getting into the scuffle, he was like, well, you can't go. And she's jacking away and he's trying to detain her. And they end up getting on the ground. He tries to wrestle to the ground. And all of a sudden, his body camera flies off of him. So you don't get to see much of the interaction because his camera's a few feet away from him. And so about the video is about 10 minutes long. I would say about six or seven minutes of it is the camera in the grass and you're just hearing um, kind of a scuffle until the parents get out there. And one of the first thing that the mom says is, why is your camera off? And as a parent, it's all the things that are going on. And you also see in the video that the girl asked to call her sister. She wanted to call her mom. And I just think when you come into those type of situations, especially if you're checking on somebody's well-being, the first thing that you want to do is get a mom out there or a sister out there, somebody who's going to calm her down, make sure she's okay. Someone who knows her, who knows the things that she do, but he was not in no way interested in getting anybody out there for her safety. Like I said, I felt like it was more for control. Once she said that she didn't want to tell him where she was going, once she said that she was fine, it turned into, you need to do what I say, as opposed to me helping you. And I think that leads to one of the big things that I do want to see in policing that changes. I feel like there are way too many unneeded interactions with police. I think that's one of the big reasons why the stop and frisk thing had to go away in New York. There's just way too many unneeded interactions um, with police when you are a community servant. You're trying to make sure everybody's safe in every every situation that you may come across. A lot of times, I won't say every, but you'll see it looks like they're trying to detain a criminal as opposed to trying to get information. And in those situations, it just looks like they're searching for something. So I would love to see Less interactions with police. And in my mind, that means we need less police. A social worker should have came out there for that call or a therapist should have came out there to see if she was okay, as opposed to a cop who's trained to detain. You know, that's the way they're trained. And so when they go out there, no matter who's there, their training is going to kick in, which leads me to my next thing that I want to see is different training. There's no reason for you to have to escalate a situation to fix it. Every situation just does not need escalating. Um, and so I think, especially in our community, we've seen a lot of times where people calling the police um, to be a benefit from them, and it ended up very tragically. So I am one of those people, and I know a lot of people give me, you know, flag for it, but I'm one of those people who I'm gonna call the police at the very late, like if we absolutely need them. I don't want the police coming to my house. I really do not want the police coming to my house. I don't want the police coming to talk to any of my people. And so if there's any way that we can take care of it, I just rather leave the police completely out of it. Yeah, that's that's I agree 100 uh, percent. Speaking of that, you know, to uh, let me see. Last week I was driving and I turned on this road that I had never been on before. It was, I guess it was a 35 and I was doing 54 <laughs> and I got pulled over. And it's been a long time. I haven't had a ticket in years. I'd say probably about 10, 12 years. But um, I got pulled over and I was like, OK, let me go ahead and assume the, assume the position. Let me go ahead and put my hands on the wheel, whatever. Soon as dude came up, I was like, was I speeding? My fault, man. <laughs> I, just, I wasn't even trying to get into the mindset of arguing with him about whether I was guilty or not, because I was like, OK. He stopped me for a reason. Now, I know it's not always the case where they stop you um, for a reason, but he stopped me for a reason. I assumed that I was speeding. And he was like, yeah, you was doing 54 and the 35. And I was like, okay, man, I didn't even see it. Yeah, I just got to take an L on this one. And, you know, he went, asked for my driver's license and everything, what they regularly do. 
in this scenario, he came back and he was like, man, I'm going to give you a warning this time. So it worked out in my favor. I would like to believe, and it's not always the case, because I know other people would argue that's not how it goes down all the time. But I would like to believe that a part of that was in my disposition and my assuming responsibility and not arguing and going on and saying, I know I'm wrong. So the only thing you left that you don't have to prove nothing to me. The only thing you left with is, are you going to give me mercy or not? Now, um, I feel, and this is why I brought that up. I feel like it shouldn't be on me to demonstrate the most civility. It should be on them because they got the power, because they got they got the ability to end somebody's life. They have the ability to make an escalated thing, uh, a murder scene. So, I, I but I still say that I don't trust the authorities with my life. So I'm doing more on my end to overcompensate for what they should be doing. But uh, I'm just saying that to your point. I agree. The more that because I'm not gonna always run across somebody like that. So the more that I can stay away from those encounters and and not have to deal with them, the better. Because you don't know who you're going to come against. You, I mean, who you're going to encounter if you're dealing with a racist, if you're dealing with somebody who had a bad day, having a bad marriage, having a bad life. Uh, his kids don't respect them. His friends don't respect them or whatever. But he got that bad. So now he's about to show and prove that he has the power and authority to make somebody do something. I don't want to be a part of it. Um, but like I said, so I feel like there are times when we do have the ability to change the situation and de-escalate ourselves, but really that is on them as the authorities, those who have been trained to interact with the public. That's that's my mindset on it. I think that uh, important that you brought that back, that brought that part up, Terrence, because I'm going back to that video. And I'm not even going to speak on what the little, the young girl did because she was emotional and scared at a certain point. But when the, when the family arrives, granted, I, I can understand their disposition too. Like you, you are, you got your body on my daughter. And like, this is how this thing get this way. But even what you say, sometimes we got to learn how to like control our emotions and we shouldn't have to be the ones to do that. But by the end of the video, the mom is being detained because of her reaction of trying to snatch her daughter from the cop, or, or at least that's what, what was being assessed. And from what you could hear, she is trying to move her from the police because he got her shackled too tight or whatever the case might be. But when you when you approach the situation with that level of aggression, I just don't see anything good coming out of it for us. You know, Even if you feel like you're right, and the community would be like, yeah, you're right, but that that doesn't mean anything if you are murdered. You know what I'm saying? It doesn't being right and dead doesn't do anything for our community. You know what I'm saying? You have to we have to approach it with some humility to survive the moment because at least you're alive long enough to go argue your case in the court. Or you you have the public that comes to your aid to rally for that cause and you're not a hashtag because you, you know, were murdered on the scene of a police interaction that went wrong. So I, I get it. We get it a hundred percent that we shouldn't be the ones like, like Terrence just said that has to, you know, demonstrate the most stability. But in a situation like that, you want to put, put a value on your life and the value of the life of your loved ones. So that in, in such a way where you say, you know what, 
in this situation, I could be right. I could be aggressive, but I'm going to show some humility and restrain myself just to make it out of this circumstance alive. And, and that's really what we are encouraging in the situation. But even to your point, Jonathan, in regards to what we want to see in training, I do believe that the police in there in some new training should have a lot more de-escalation courses um, made available and not just having social workers come to the scene, but actually having to be trained, you know, in some human services courses, psychology and, and social work and all that type of stuff. So they have more tools in their tool belt to reach for in those circumstances. Let me ask you a question real quick. And we just touched on it real quick. What are y'all initial thoughts of the defund the police movement? What do you, is that, would that be good for our community? Would it be bad? And then is it, um, like, is it something that could be done? Um, when I initially hear it, to me, it doesn't sound, um, it doesn't sound realistic. Defund the police altogether. Um, but maybe it's because of my lack of knowledge on how it would be done and what would be implemented. And like you were talking about other people coming in the place of police to do certain things. I could see how redirecting funds and, and, um, minimizing the amount of police and directing it to other places and other people and other authorities or, um, representatives of the government that are not, like you said, trained to detain, I could I could go with that, but I just when I first hear it, to me it doesn't make sense because yeah, there's a lot of corrupt police, but we want to be able to call the police when we need the police as upright citizens. When people are doing us wrong, people are robbing from us or doing something, we don't want to be in a situation where we call in and they don't have enough police to respond to us, and we are living upright and are law-abiding citizens. So. With that play, you know, I just I look at that and I'm like, okay, I can get with you. I it just don't make sense to me right now. So make it make sense. I think that uh, well, I guess when I'm understanding defund the police, it's not literally like get rid of all police, but it is a redirection of some of their funding, right? Um, into other types of organizations within the community that can um have more in reach within the community prior to a person getting into some some type of criminal uh, encounter with the police, you know, really doing more uh, to build up the community, providing opportunities for the inner city youth so that they, they're not limited to doing criminal acts that lead them into those situations. And um, I think that the movement, I think that that makes sense. I mean, um, I feel like maybe the, the name of it should change <laughs> because I – I think that at, at the surface, as soon as you say it, people, what, what Terrence just said, people assume that we're saying get rid of the police, you know, period. And I don't think we could live in a society without any type of law enforcement. Um, but I just think that what people are actually saying is not being fairly communicated with that hashtag defund the police. Um, I think that it just another name has to come up so that people are clear and they don't lose people immediately at this, the sound of that, that particular title or, or name of a movement, because I think that what they're suggesting is fair and some police departments and, you know, police systems, they get way too much of the, the state budget or the city budget um, to, to doing the things that they're doing. So, and there are a lot more, uh, organizations that will be of a better help that are super underfunded. So yeah, I definitely agree with what they are proposing. Yeah. And just a final thought, I agree as well with the, with that. 
Um, I agree the name needs to be changed. It should be something like reallocate funds for the police or something. Basically, say what you want to do instead of trying to come up with some kind of cool slogan because people listen to the slogan and move on. But one of the things I, I do like to highlight is the number one contributor to crime in any area, if anybody looks it up, is poverty. Poverty. Poor people commit more crimes. And so if you have these police departments with all these funds, and the reason why they have these funds is to come into the community to help the community not commit crimes, all the crime is still there. Obviously, there's something that's not clicking there. So I would I would very much advocate for taking some of those funds and applying them back to the communities, creating opportunities. Less poverty, I think, will be a correlation uh, with less crime. With less crime. Um, and we also know that the police are oftentimes reactionary anyway. If somebody's actively breaking in your house, if somebody's actively stealing your car, you call the police, they're not going to be there in that moment. A lot of times they're going to show up after the fact anyway. So we have so many police patrolling these areas. They're not stopping any crime. They're just kind of reacting to what's there. And usually in those type of areas, you're not going to get the the best service or, you know, the Mozilla's cops to come figure out what's going on anyway. So I feel like if we just uh, invest more into the community, we won't need as many police. Yeah, I think that that's everything that you said is spot on. And um, I think that we will continue to have this conversation uh, you know, we're just in the context of, you know, police reform as our nation continues to discuss it. Um, we definitely should be praying on that for those who are in the faith. We, we have a responsibility to be praying for our nation, um, and, and just participating in legislation when those things come out to be informed, to be in the know, to, to participate, to get involved on community levels and not even just when it comes to that, but like, what are we actually doing for the youth in our community? Are you contributing, are you volunteering? Any of those things, all those things help out until we see a, a systemic uh, transformation happen. We can do our due diligence in our neighborhoods or within our uh, family groups, whatever, whatever smaller, however you want to reduce it down. If you're putting in some effort, um, that's the change that we at least need to start with. Um, and so, yeah, so we're going to continue on moving into our next segment for today's show. I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to Terrence. Yeah, yeah. So we were talking about the prosperity movement and just getting into people's mentality and understanding of the prosperity movement and how people view it. And we had some interesting conversation about it before. Uh, we didn't really get deep into the origin of it. We kind of touched on the surface of it a little bit. Um, but really, the prosperity movement is not one systematic religion. And the name itself that is ascribed to people who you would put in that movement uh, is not something that they, it's not a self-claim. It's not something that people say, this is what I am. I'm part of the prosperity movement. But it's basically like a negative label or slur against people who teach in a particular way. What we did talk about before is that the prosperity gospel sprang up from the new thought movement or you could see the foundational teachings and ideologies from the new thought um, movement beginning somewhere around 1895 but really it even goes back further than that but we said it is not a church or a denomination and that the pioneers of the new thought movement are Emmanuel Swedenborg he's was from 1688 to 1772, and then Phineas Quimby, 
1802 to 1866. We talked about some of the tenets of the new thought that we, uh, some of them we do agree with, but there are some other ones that need to be challenged. But it talked about how infinite intelligence or God is omnipotent and omnipresent. It said that spirit is the ultimate reality. That kind of was really like a diss to anything that's in the material world. So basically, the only thing that's real is spirit. So that goes into some Gnosticism, some Gnostic teachings that says the material realm is good, but the spiritual realm, I mean, the material realm is evil, but the spiritual realm is good. So everything material must be evil. Uh, so we have to challenge that because God made things in the natural, in the material that he called good. But the other thing is um, the idea that says true hu true human selfhood is divine. So that means outside of redemption, every human person who has a human spirit is divine just by virtue of, of them being in the image of God. So they uh, don't rely on the the um, divinity or the distinction and holiness of God or God adopting them to make them holy or divine, but that just humans in and of themselves are divine. Now, I'm not saying that everybody that we call a part of the prosperity movement, that that's what they're on. We're talking about the origins of thought that predated modern day preachers who you would call prosperity preachers, right? These, these are fundamentals. Another thing it says, um, all disease is mental in origin. That's one of the fundamental beliefs of the new thought movement. All disease is mental in origin, meaning, um, the reason why you're sick is because you have a poor thinking. Your thinking is, is, is wrong. If you change your thinking or if you develop a God consciousness or an idea of who you are as the image of God, you will no longer be sick. So on this, and I'm, I know we're talking about prosperity, but we also talked about how the prosperity movement came, in out, came out of the health and wellness, the healing movement. So we're talking about foundations here. And also that right thinking has a healing effect. So if you think right, you'll automatically be healed. Now, I don't know if y'all wanted to say something right there about some um, some comments on that. But one thing that comes to mind to me is, what about the babies that are born with some kind of defect or sickness before they develop the ability to think a particular way? And they, But they're saying that, you know, it is your mental disposition that has you sick in the first place. Um, yeah, I have anything on that before we move on into it? Um, I re you said it before I could get to it. I really was going to ask you what happens to like a baby who do they put that more on parent? Is it the parent's mental state that why the baby? And then at that point, what happens as the baby grows up? Are they now, is it a transition of who's responsible for the illness or the deformity? Right. What about you, Sheree? You have anything on that? That's, I was actually gonna uh I was gonna go to that. I was like, they probably would say that the parents in in the time of the baby developing in the womb had some negative thought processes. Uh, I mean, all of this is leading me to things that I've heard contextually in church. Maybe not dealing with the mindset per se, but some spiritual things. So I'm I'm a chill and let you continue to build on it because I can see where it, where it bleeds in. 
Okay, well, that's good. So I was going to go in order. I was going to go from the founders all the way to present day. But what I want to do, and I know some of you all who are listening are going to pull up these names and listen to it. I really want to go backwards to people who are more, you might be more familiar with or is closer um, to now than way back in times where you, I know you don't remember or know who these people are. But some people remember the guy, probably the most charismatic figure of that time, uh, Reverend Ike. I don't know if anybody remembers Reverend Ike, right? So Reverend Ike, um, what did he say? You can't lose with the stuff I use or something like that. But he was a very charismatic uh, preacher that was basically all about money. and But he also, I have to say this, he also had some great self-esteem messages for people who had a poor thinking to feel like they weren't worthy to receive money or that they didn't have any value to where they could actually operate and steward over wealth. And he said his ministry was a ministry to break the spirit of poverty and for people to understand that we have a right, a divine right to live um in abundance and prosperity. But one of the things he said, just to give you a quote, he said, I know that Paul says the love of money is the root of all evil, but I came to correct him. He said, it is the lack of money that is the root of all evil. The people who lack money are more prone to do evil than the people who have money. Now, you know, we could talk about that because we know of just the systemic issues that we deal with in society that we've already been talking about have been set in place by people, the elite people who have much money. But in his mind, Reverend Ike, his mind was lacking money in this day is the root of all is uh, the root of all evil. Another thing he said is he does believe that Christ is the son of God, but in no special sense that Christ came to reveal to us that we are all sons of God, regardless of your faith or religion or of choice. His ministry, he said, was to make people aware of their divine nature, which is the Christ within. Because we are God expressing himself through us, we can eliminate poverty within our lives through that awareness. So the reason why I'm starting with Reverend Ike is because we can call out a lot of the people today that you would say are the prosperity preachers, but you got to understand that this thing is rooted and is connected to principles um, and people, popular preachers who made a lot of money off of perpetuating a certain particular doctrine. And then other preachers who came up later took a little bit of hit from here, from there, and from there, and kind of built their ministry model off of that, but they merged it more with the faith. Uh, so what are your thoughts on that? Well, Reverend Ike, uh, he came to correct the Apostle Paul <laughs> and say, you know, basically your doctrine is wrong. What, what, are, you, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, my thoughts on that is when I think about the the well-known, um, like prosperity, what you would call prosperity preachers now, they always come with some level of, and I think it might, to me, it just feels like more of a divine intuition into what we should all be on how should we should look at it and what should we should be trying to get um it it goes to that level of i don't know what other word to call it except because you said health and wellness like 
like self-righteousness to believe that he was able, you know, he had the authority to say, you know, I'm going to correct that. That ain't, that ain't what it's supposed to be. This is supposed to be. And it's a lot of that you will see in those type of prosperity preachers. Like I'm on it. That's why I know it. And y'all don't know it. Yeah. I think that, uh, <laughs> I think that that mindset, even the mindset to do that exists within preachers today. They just wouldn't have the audacity to say it like how he said it. I'm here to correct uh apostle paul i mean even that disposition of like people may commit crime because they don't have money but that doesn't mean that they are evil because there's a very different there's a different thing you know like the bible says that if a person don't doesn't have food to eat they'll probably still you know to feed themselves that's not this that's wrong but it's not that's a difference from evil but we won't get into that but i just think that the the mindset or or the the level of pride that a person has to have in order to continue to perpetuate first the mindset to say, okay, you're above the authority of scripture. And then two, like uh, to assume like, what is it that you assume about yourself that you're entitled to have whatever it is that you think you should have. And then like make other people come into that, that, that mindset as well. And I, and I, I think we see that mindset play out in other people. Maybe they don't, they don't vocalize the same things that he would, but. We see that mindset there. Yeah. Right. Yeah, we see it. And, you know, one of the things he would get criticized was he would be on the um, on the different interviews and with Donahue and different things. And he would be decked out with his gold and with his bling bling. And, you know, people would say, well, why are you dressing like this? And he I think he was calling out something that was real where they had a problem with a black man living lavish like that having the rolls royce and talking about money and being bold and confident i think he was right about calling that out um but my issue with him was his doctrine his doctrine about scripture and about who we are in relation to who christ is and what god set up but i do believe a lot of things he was saying in terms of the reason why we don't have is because our of our mentality our thinking that we don't deserve it and then, you know, for the longest, people really, there have been, we talk about the prosperity movement, but we don't talk about the poverty movements. There have been poverty movements for years where people have become part of um, these monasteries or whatever who take a vow of poverty. And, and that's supposed to show that they're, show their righteousness or show their level of holiness, how poor they are. You know, they would forsake all of the things in the world go in a monastery, study scripture, feed the poor, whatever. And so you have these two extremes going on. So that's another thing to look at too. But one of the things I will say for Reverend Ike <laughs> is that he did pioneer in, um, in some things regarding integration, social justice, feeding the poor, um, uh, and some things like that. So he was into that kind of stuff, too. He didn't like to publicize that because he really wanted to say it wasn't about that. It was really about the fact that God is in you. Once I saw him on an Oprah interview and he was talking about the real thing is I don't heal anybody or I don't bring prosperity into anybody. But once they accept that God lives within them, once they have that reality and that consciousness, that Christ consciousness, then they'll come into their own healing and um, their relationship with money. But I'm just going to call out some other people real quick and we can chop it up a little bit more about it. 
I don't know. You you heard us talk about Reverend Ike, but have you heard about Father Divine? <laughs> now, Father Divine goes back further than Reverend Ike, and he was one of the ones where people actually said that he was God. And he also dealt with integration where he had, you know, he even in a time of segregation, he integrated his churches. Um, but he basically was saying he was God in the flesh. And he had a whole lot of money coming into him. I, and I guess I want to pause and say, do you think there there seems to be some kind of connection between a person convincing people that they are God or divine and the money that they receive through convincing them of that, if that makes any sense? In other words, if I can convince you that I have this, spe- this special divinity even if you have it too but you you have it because you heard it from me <laughs> but if i can convince you that i am god or i'm special or that i have a realization that i'm god that that can connect to um the message of prosperity does my question make sense or is that confusing what i'm asking i think i understand what you're asking um i i do see even when you I know that you're talking about the prosperity people that led that movement in various times, but even that, that idea of like, I'm special, like you special, but I'm special, special because I'm the one that told you, you were special that entitles me to something more than what you have. Um, because I was watching like, I think a and E or another, some channel they used to have like the, the shows that kind of, uh, got into like the, the, the cults and they would break down different cults that emerged. And that same ideology was present in those cults. Like, you know, you're special, which is why you need to come away from your family. None of these people understand anything. And then they would somehow give all of their possessions to that leader because they're special, but they're not as special as this person because they have God. Like they, they best friends with God. Like I ain't best friends with God like that, you know? So I, I definitely agree that there's a certain level of manipulation that, that's a part of that process as well, you know. So, I I believe I'm answering your question, which was, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think I see that, I see that manipulation as well, um, because you usually have the people who are more well off who are starting those type of things. So then people that they're bringing in have something to look for or look at and say, well, I know that they are on it because look at all the stuff that they have, and I don't have that stuff. Maybe I can get to the point where I have that stuff. So they kind of show off their money and the value that they have because in this society, you know, money. Money is the power. So if you got the money, obviously you have the power. No doubt. Yeah, I believe that feeds into it. This um, jumping forward again to modern day, um, that becomes a part of their quote unquote ministry is the image to show how much I have my fleet of cars, whatever. Not to say it's wrong with having a fleet of cars, anything like that. If you can, if you can floss, if you can do your work, do whatever you do. And you're a business person and you come into abundance and you have a certain hobby. You like to collect cars. You like to do different things like that. I'm not here to judge which material thing is holier than another thing. Uh, But I've noticed that people use that as a gauge to say these people have gained a certain spiritual wisdom or a certain mystery concerning the things or principles of God that other people have not. And so these trinkets that they get is really to feed into that image that, see, this is how I'm different from you, which actually feeds into why they begin to sow into them. And they'll say that that's good ground. 
and it was so deeper into them. And so they would get more off of that image with people having the hopes of maybe I will become what you are because I'm sowing into you. And so uh, I'm going to probably do one more as far as going into it some more later. But one of the things I wanted to say, what I feel like is important right now, what we look at, we talk about this good ground and sowing and this prosperity um, gospel. I believe if it's really a prosperity gospel in the positive sense of the word, then you should be teaching the people who follow you how to prosper more so than just teaching them how to give. Um, And we understand sowing and reaping, but I believe that the principle of sowing and reaping has its place in that you sow, you show a man how to sow diligence in his labor, in his work, to sow in studying and and, um, researching and sow in investing in himself so that he can reap the benefits of that and not just sowing into your ministry and paying uh, or sowing special seed offerings, $100,000 offerings, whatever. And for years and years, the only person that really benefits from that, uh, well, that could be argued and debated. But a lot of people argue that the main people who benefit from that is the preacher that's preaching it and not the people who are giving it. Um, They still have to learn a craft, learn a skill, learn a trade, learn how to be diligent in their workplace before they would actually be able to move into that level of prosperity for themselves, which is why I see why people would have a problem with the quote unquote, I don't like the title, prosperity gospel, because the scripture says the gospel is the gospel of peace. Peace, you could say shalom, prosperity, uh, lacking nothing. And so the gospel is a gospel of prosperity. So I don't like that it has a negative connotation, but that's what I'm saying on that. I think we need to build on it one more time so I can just go a little bit deeper into some other folks right now. But yeah, have anything else to say before we wrap this up? No, I definitely think that you need to go another week because I think it's still a whole nother, like in the present time, things that we have to address. Even the perspective that you brought up uh we know with sowing and reaping and even tithes and offering and all that type of stuff that people, I know a lot of our listeners will have questions about that. Even like when, you know, I don't want to give because the pastor got this and the people, most of the people in churches in poverty, like these are the conversations um, that I have with people um, on the regular. So I definitely think we could, we could go into another week of, of bringing it to more present day time stuff. Well, before before we end this up, I just want to just give you names then. I'm just going to drop names on you. I'm not going to break down the history just so y'all can get a context if you want to look it up yourself. So I went from Reverend Ike, Father Divine. Then you can look up Father Jehovia, who's another person. Um, and then you have Essek William Kenyon. That's Essek William Kenyon. This is going back. I'm just dropping names on you. Dr. Ernest Holmes, who is the founder of the religious science movement. Charles and Myrtle Page Fillmore, who who are pioneers in the New Thought movement. Emma Curtis Hopkins. Uh, Going back, you may have heard of Mary Baker Eddy, the Christian science movement. Phineas Parkhurst Quimby um, and his uh, and also uh, people like Ralph Waldo Emerson um and some other folks there's so many folks but i'm just telling you anton mesmer we hear the term mes somebody being mesmerized that comes from the word ant from the name anton mesmer all these people i'm breaking down you could have whole studies and breakdowns of each of those people so go and look them up so that you can get more of the context of 
where some of this comes from for you. But we'll end it for now. We'll bring it back around next time. Wow. Well, the scroll has definitely been unrolled. We're not even going to roll it back up. We'll just leave it on the desk so we can just come back to it fresh the next time. Because like I said, it's, it's so much more we can we can um, extract from that. And um, the wisdom of God is is um, coming along with that. Just a, And for our listening audience, when we're saying prosperity, we're, we're actually not addressing prosperity because we believe that's, as Terrence said, that's something from, um, that is something that the gospel contains. That's something that the Father uh, wants us to have. But prosperity does not equal greed. Prosperity does not mean having an overabundance of unnecessary material wealth. Prosperity deals with the whole person and having what is necessary for you to fulfill and live out your destiny and being able to be generous in, in all in all of those things. So that's what we want to we want to make sure we're separating to. We're, we're identifying the prosperity gospel um, because that is what the culture calls what we are trying to address, which is dealing with greed um, and a misappropriation of scripture in many ways. Um, so that's what we want to we want to dig into. And we'll continue to, to build on that um, next week. So we're going to go ahead and um, get into our final two uh, segments for today. And uh, without further ado, we're going to get into our what's good. What's good? What's good? Yeah, that's right. What's good? So we want to make sure we bring to you uh, things that we believe are good, that are good resources, that is good news, um, that are just overall God doing good things through his people in the earth. And today we have a couple of resources that we want to present to you, um, or, or a few, I should say. And I'll start it off. I have a resource. Um, um, this resource is the Jude 3 Project. I, I think that is something that I think that many of you may be able to benefit from this platform, the Jew three podcast, um, an apologist by the name of Lisa fields, um, created this platform. And the mission of this platform, um, is to help Christian, the Christian community know what they believe and why they believe it. And its distinction is that, um, it emphasizes, um, the equipping of those in, that are of African descent in the United States and abroad. So it focuses a lot on answering questions that are relevant, a lot more relevant to the black community in terms of being able to deal with so, the social constructs um, that we have today, ideology, uh, you know, being able to connect, connect to our roots and culture, but also understanding how the Bible is a part of that and also just uh, dealing with theology and things of that nature. But I think this platform is very beneficial. They answer a lot of questions. They address, they have lots of conversations. Um, they did an interview recently uh, with Street Hymns. I don't, if if you are a fan of battle rap, Street Hymns is a battle rapper. He's a Christian in the battle rap community. Um, but he recently like kind of came out, you know, just embracing his Hebrew identity. And it was such, uh, such a swarm around that. And so they interviewed him dealing with Hebrew Israelism. But they do a lot of those types of conversations when things are, I guess, uh, on the cutting edge. They decide to like, okay, let's let's talk about it. Let's put this with scripture. Let's dig into it. And so, yeah, check them out. The Jew Three Project. They have a YouTube. Uh, I think they have a podcast and they have a website. So check them out. Jew Three Project. Jonathan, you have something? Yeah, um, just that Jew Three Project is good. I listen to them on the podcast as well. I subscribe to their podcast. So. It is a very, very good resource. I'm going to piggyback off of my one of my previous resources. We're talking about like identification and representation um, and kind of seeing yourself um, through the lens of what you're studying. And I think one of the key things that I always wanted for my kids, because I know when I was growing up and hearing different Bible stories, a lot of it just didn't identify with me personally. 
Oh, a lot of times growing up as a kid, I didn't identify with the stores personally. A lot of times the books that were presented to me and the things that just it didn't look like me. And subconsciously as a kid, um, now that I'm older, I realize why, because I couldn't see myself in a lot of those things. Um, but just to piggyback on one of my older ones, Dr. Theron D. Williams, the Bible is Black History. He has a children's edition now. Um, and I have the children's edition for my kids. Um, I want them to see it. I want them to see representation of themselves to be able to identify with these things and not just look at them as stories, but look at them as historical documentation of our people. And I want them to absolutely know that. And so I think that's a good resource um, to read with your kids, to have your kids read, to introduce your kids into the Bible and then to help them identify with the Bible on a personal level. Terrence, you have a, a what's uh, what's good to share with the people? Yeah, um, I just want to give you a name. Um, if you are interested in writing, recording, uh, you, you love books, you love um, administration in some kind of way, if you're in a support ministry and you help the leader or visionary get things done, I want you to look up Teresa Harvard Johnson, who is the leader of the Chamber of the Scribes, the School of the Scribes, and and just dig into anything you need to dig into. She has a whole list of books, a host of books um, dealing with the identity of the New Covenant, New Testament scribes, dealing with those who dream, dreams and visions and understanding just identity. It's very important. There's only a few people that I could put on my list of. They they brought a message in the modern day that changed my life and the trajectory of my life. Um, long term, I would say Paula Price, um, Dr. Miles Monroe, and Teresa Harvard Johnson is the one of them. So she's on Facebook, she's on YouTube. Look up anything you can look up and just kind of explore based on where you feel like you fit in. Um, but if you um, feel a call to anything that's support ministry or even teaching ministry, uh, writing, drawing, graphic graphic designs, recording, anything in that realm. And there's so much more I could say. I just want you to look up this individual and follow and get involved with what she's teaching because she is bringing some um, groundbreaking stuff to the modern day church concerning the identity of the modern day scribe. Check her out. Ditto on Teresa Harvard Johnson. She definitely has great resources and a lot of her resources are on Amazon as well. I know a lot of y'all hitting that Amazon cart way too often. So while you're putting stuff in there, go ahead and check out some of her resources uh, for sure. Um, but make sure you're being a good steward. You know, we're called to be good stewards um, for those that are in the faith and following the way of the Mashiach. Well, guys, um, this is almost a wrap on our show for this week. Um, before we leave out, I'm going to go ahead and let uh, Terrence leave you with some words to live by, some inspiration, and then we'll we'll roll out. Yes, I just want to encourage my people um, to pursue wholeness in all that you do. Our goal is to be whole. Wholeness comes from what we would see in the word holiness, what it means to be fully integral, or where we get the word integrity from. We want to be healthy in spirit, or whole in spirit, whole in soul, in our soul, whole in our body. So take the time to feed and exercise your spirit through the word, through worship. Exercise and feed your soul through reading, meditation, communication, 
interaction and dialogue, all those things help build up your soul. And thirdly, your body. Remember, we need to exercise, eat right as much as possible. Um, and I would say not just rest because we like to jump to rest, but even remember that it's it's our responsibility to exert physical energy, to do something, move our bodies, stay stay moving because that helps our mind as well, and then learn how to rest. So all those things, pursuing wholeness is spirit, soul, and body. We want to be whole and complete and lacking nothing. So take care of all those realms of who you are, spirit, soul, and body. And that's the word. Yeah, that's peace. That's peace. Well, guys, it's been a jam-packed episode. Another one for you. Uh, we pray again that this content is edifying to you. We know that we hit you with a, a few haymakers back to back to back. Um, but we think, definitely think these are important topics that need to be uh, discussed in our community. Um, we think that we could we need to consistently grow in these areas um, as a community and contribute in these areas as a community. And so um, we, we are excited that you have decided to continue with us on this journey and this beautiful experience. And we are looking forward to seeing you here next week, same time, same place. And I'm going to leave you like I always leave you. You might mind your business. You might mind your manners, but don't do anything without considering the mind of God. It's the High Culture Podcast, y'all. We out of this thing. High Culture, get up on that kingdom life. Get up on that kingdom life. Yeah, get up on that kingdom life. High Culture, get up on that kingdom life. Get up on that kingdom life. Yeah, get up on that kingdom life. Young men to see visions and old men. Young men to see your visions and all